Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Last week, the Justice Department created a special denaturalization unit tasked to investigate and litigate criminals who have become naturalized citizens. To understand why the government has taken an interest and decided to emphasize these cases, we brought Irina D. Mata, professor of law at Hofstra University. Kind of everybody listening to this program should ask themselves, what would they do tomorrow if their citizenship were taken away? What would their life look like? What would that mean? What would it mean for their family? What would it mean for their work? And Cassandra B. Robertson, professor of law at Case Western Reserve. If you had a national security section, right, or an anti-terrorism section that was only looking at cases with a connection to terrorism and national security, maybe they would do some denaturalization work as well. But the end goal is to make a safer America. I worry if the end goal is to take away citizenship. Cassandra Arena have collaborated on several scholarly publications surrounding what role does due process play in cases of denaturalization and how may that affect our civil liberties. A conversation which ultimately boils down to one fundamental question. Just how easy can your citizenship be taken away? We explore that question today. I'm Ian Gaines. Come join us Beyond Borders. On February 26, the Justice Department announced that they have a new section that is focused on denaturalization of immigrants. When we're thinking about that process, we think about what is the legal implications of this? And do naturalized immigrants have a case to reprieve, right? And we have professors. Law. Oh, yes. Yes, yeah. a law. Legit. <laughs> yeah. Yes, thank you. Sorry. Um, but who done extensive work in this area. But first, could we uh, give our listeners a little bit of understanding of your, your background in law? Sure, sure. So um, I teach at Case Western Reserve University School of Law and um, have taught here for 13 years. And my scholarly focus is on procedure, um, largely civil procedure. I teach civil procedure. I've written primarily about issues raising due process concerns. So I, I come to the denaturalization issue as a proceduralist looking at what what are the legal protections? Um, how do we ensure that fair procedure? procedures are implemented. Okay, nice. Irina? Um, I used to be Cassandra's colleague back in the day at Case Western. Uh, I am now a professor at Hofstra Law, visiting this year at St. John's Law. I was originally an intellectual property law scholar, so a little bit of a different area, uh, although I've certainly had some uh, personal experience with uh, with immigration. Mm -hmm. Cassandra and I over the years just became very concerned about a number of national security issues of like having to do with the no-fly list and then later on immigration issues. And we both had this deep interest in procedural uh, protections for civil liberties. Uh, and that brought us together to work on this. Right, right. And have you found similar cases with this new iteration? Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, I'll be happy to talk about the Singh case. So the very first case to go through to a final judgment of denaturalization under the recent programs was a man named Baljinder Singh. Mm -hmm. And he was somebody who had come over from India in the very early 90s um, when there were a whole lot of Sikh asylum seekers. 
And so he comes over in a wave of tens of thousands of asylum seekers. And as a 16-year-old, doesn't speak English, comes over in this huge wave. We know now that there were two files opened for him, one under the name Devinder Singh and one under the name Baljinder Singh, mm-hmm. both with, we now know, fingerprints that matched. So, mm-hmm. you know, these two files do seem to pertain to him. What happens is he came into California, he was transferred to New Jersey, where there was a larger Sikh community, and he had family friends he could stay with. It, it seems that his file didn't follow him properly for whatever mm. reason. Um, but at any rate, so in the same New Jersey courthouse, there's there's two files that seem to pertain to him before we had massive computerization of records. Mm. And what happens is one case does not go forward um, because he doesn't appear to make the asylum case. So it, mm. you know, the only thing the court can do is to deny it and issue an order of removal. Um, the second case, less than a month later, in the same courthouse, does in fact go forward. The uh, procedures for seeking asylum were a little bit different, but you know, passes the credible fear determination, um, survives several rounds of hearings, ends up pending for six years. At that mm. point, Singh marries a citizen and um, becomes eligible for first a green card and permanent residency and then later citizenship. And um, for years, you know, in, until 2016, 2017, no one had any idea that these two records were connected. Um, but once they were connected through digitization, now the government sees that, hey, there was a record of deportation, an order of deportation ordered in this one file that never got cleared out. Hmm. And so the government goes forward with a fraud claim against Baljinder Singh, saying you were trying to get a second bite of the apple, you committed fraud, came in under a second name. He is not personally served with process in the new case, does not appear to defend against the denaturalization complaint. And so the court then issues a summary judgment of denaturalization against him, saying we have to take the government's allegations as true since you didn't show up to defend. Um, We think there's a good chance of bureaucratic error because it just doesn't make sense that he would lie about his name at that point. I mean, as you know, if somebody fails to appear for a hearing, it's pretty easy in that 30-day period to file a motion to reopen and to explain, I didn't get the notice, or, mm-hmm. you know, you know, even if it's I overslept and didn't appear for this hearing, sure. courts want to issue rulings on the merits. They don't right. want to issue procedural defaults. Mm-hmm. So it made no sense to us that the idea that somebody would commit felony fraud rather than just moving to reopen. And in the earlier case, there was never a finding on the merits that he wasn't eligible for asylum. The only finding was he didn't appear for a hearing. So what can we do? But we think it's a problem that we don't know, right? He wasn't personally served. We don't even know if he's lost, if he, if he knows that he's lost citizenship. We don't know if he has any idea that these proceedings even happened. And, and, and the idea that it's an unknown seems to be to me itself a violation of due process, that if we're going to take citizenship away from somebody, we need a higher level of comfort that we're doing it and for scrutiny. the right reasons. Yes. I think, you know, if, if we were to just kind of look at this in an overarching way, everything that Cassandra just said, we have a situation where somebody, like she said, did not have a, a, a substantive adjudication made against him. 
right, who had mm-hmm. no reason to commit fraud. This was in the case of somebody who, again, had a decision against him, and then he came back in the country under a different name. It was nothing like that. And then after that, right, like once he got married and, and he got status that way, he lived in this country for a really long time without committing any crimes, not bothering anybody, right, from the early 90s until right. a few uh, years ago. And then the government wakes up, serves him at his last known address, keeping in mind that U.S. citizens are not obligated to tell the government where they live. So the fact that he wasn't there is really not that surprising. And they didn't look too hard to find him either. (laughs) They served somebody else with the same last name at that address. That is the last name that is shared by millions of people in this country. Um, It actually makes a lot of sense that he would have never found out about it. And so we were wondering also, what goals of justice does this serve? What goals of Mm. justice does it serve to go after individuals like Singh? And this is, I think, where it's important to emphasize that what is being portrayed in the media and in some Mm. of the press releases of the DOJ and the reality on the ground are not always a match. Right. 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 This was not a a, a criminal or or somebody that was harming the United States uh, or anything of the sort. And and so we also have to wonder a bit in terms of um, resources that the federal government is expending. Why? Why these kinds of cases? Right. Well, look at us. We are keeping the, you know, we are keeping the United States safe from these outsiders. And this brings us to a larger and deeper problem, which is to say, you know, let's say it was an administrative error or something or a translation error that led to all this in the beginning. Hmm. That means that no naturalized U.S. citizen is ever safe. There is no statute of limitations for civil denaturalization, as we point out also in our work. Um, So there is no point at which somebody, well, I'm going to say that I, as a naturalized citizen, for example, that I am one of you, right? That's just never going to be the case, because even dozens of years later, there could be something that the government, you know, finds a hang up about. uh, And that sets a very, very dangerous precedent. Right. When you become a, a naturalized citizen, you, like you do have citizenship. So how easy is that able to be revoked? Citizenship, when you think about that, that's something should be pretty permanent unless it's some extreme circumstances, right? Yes. Right. Yes. Sure. So, I mean, I think there's kind of two parts to your question about how easy it is. Um, Historically, the United States engaged in, you know, a significant number of denaturalizations, mostly around the time of the two world wars. Mm. And in 1967, the Supreme Court said no, said permanency is too important for citizens. We can't afford to have this be politicized. So there will be no denaturalization except in cases of proven fraud and fraud needs to be proved by clear and convincing evidence. So mm-hmm. a high standard of, of proof, right? More than the ordinary civil burden mm-hmm. and um, only for, for fraud or ineligibility and no other grounds. So it, it seemed to really limit the, the grounds for denaturalization. And for decades, you had almost no cases. For the next 50 years, you had maybe 150 cases in total. And as we know, right, that has completely changed now with the current administration. 
situation, those numbers are, are way up. Is, is that due to like legitimate concerns? So, I mean, the civil divisions, the naturalization right. section, it says that they're creating this due to like terrorists, war criminals, sex offenders, right. and other fraudsters, right? So right. is the government, is Justice Department seeing, hey, we're getting this increase or this influx of fraud and we have to create this new section to deal with this issue? Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, so, and, and there's, there's kind of two parts to that too, right? Mm -hmm. So there's the creation of the new section. Um, but even before that, I, I would say, you know, this is where I really want to draw out how important the procedures are because mm -hmm. the substantive standard for denaturalization is so hot. You need, you need this fraud or ineligibility. You need to have that proved by clear and convincing evidence. It sounds like cases should be very rare. Mm -hmm. The procedural standard though, I think is the real weakness, especially for civil denaturalization. There's no statute of limitations. So you're having to prove what happened 30 years ago when there's very little documentation, memory are weak. People mm, have mm -hmm. you know, moved on or passed away. Right. Um, so, so no statute of limitations, no right to an attorney, which makes it really hard for people to defend themselves, especially if they can't afford to appear. For example, in the Singh case, we think he has long since moved away from New Jersey. So, you know, how does he defend in a New Jersey courthouse? Can he afford an attorney? We don't know. Um, no no requirement of personal service. So service can be made at somebody's last known address, but maybe they didn't live there for 20 years, right? And then and then the possibility of summary judgment. So somebody isn't able to, or at any rate, doesn't show up to defend against a case. And then the court issues a summary judgment ruling. So those procedural weaknesses take a case where maybe the substantive standard couldn't be proved, um, but make the person lose their citizenship anyway, because they can't comply with these procedural requirements. Requirements. Mm -hmm. And so the procedural weaknesses, I think they're the big weakness here because now we're not ensuring that it is just the other cases. Um, when we look at the creation of the new DOJ section, I, I would say look at what they do rather than what they say. Mm -hmm. So, yes, they mm -hmm. say that we need this to go after war criminals and national security risks. But that's not the cases that the DOJ has been bringing, right? Mm. There's no allegation that Baljinder Singh was involved in any sort of criminal activity or that he was any threat to national security. The government doesn't even seem to have looked for him very hard, so I doubt they were worried about him. The other case we write about in our article is a woman named uh, Norma Borgano. And her case is just absolutely heartbreaking. She's mm. a grandmother in Miami who worked for an import-export company. Um, she had a very serious illness and you know, desperately needed health insurance. Mm. And her, her, her boss was engaged in fraud. So mm. you know, a bad situation was later convicted of defrauding um, the, uh, the government's import-export. Right. But no fault of her own, though. Right. So, you know, the mm. most she allegedly did was to assist him with some paperwork because she was right. essentially his secretary. When the FBI starts investigating, she absolutely complies with the investigation. She agrees to aid them. She helps them bring the case against her boss, helps them get the conviction against her boss. And she's charged with aiding and abetting. Wow. I, I personally okay. think she could have challenged that and gone to trial on that, quite possibly one. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, sometimes it's it's easier to take a plea bargain rather than go to trial. And the plea bargain they offered her was not, not a bad deal. She had a few months of probation. She had a fine that she was able to pay back in full. She complied with all of that. 
And then after that happens, the government pursues denaturalization against her and says, well, she was ineligible for citizenship because she didn't meet our moral character requirements. Wow. And again, like she's no threat to national security. Um, and I suspect that her moral character is as good or better than most Americans, mm -hmm. right? She helped the FBI. Um, you know, right. it's, it's, it's not the kind of case that the DOJ right. press release says that they are interested right. in. Right. So it really comes down to the discretion of whoever yeah. the officer, whoever's looking at the case and, and judging it, right? There's yes. no clear cut threshold that needs to be met or is there a, a list of criteria that's sort of permanent and they have to go through right. A, B, and C and, and check it off the list. It's really up to uh, their own determination. And that's where yes. it gets a little murky. Yes. Right. Well, I think this is where there are two parts again, right? There's mm -hmm. what you just pointed out. <laughs> so many uh, parts. There's so many parts to this. Always. So many parts. <laughs> Never uh, just one. Never just one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The problem and this arbitrariness, right? Mm -hmm. But then there is also um, this question of shouldn't the justice system have an interest in finality? Right. In so many other contexts, at some point, a case is considered final. This is why we have statutes of limitations. Right? Like everybody at some point moves on. We understand that, you know, people are not always perfect. Americans are not perfect, whether they're U.S. born or not. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that at some point we all to some extent, forgive and forget. Mm -hmm. And here we're talking about things being pulled up from dozens and dozens of years ago. You know, this is where, at the risk of sounding a little bit provocative, I'm going to ask. Go ahead. <laughs> do do U.S. born people really not have anything in their record that they might have done dozens of years ago that they regret, mm -hmm. or maybe some of it was even illegal? Yeah. Really? That, that none of that, right? Like none of them have anything that, you know, if somebody came and told them now you're going to have to leave this country or you're going to lose your livelihood or all of that, all of these years later, there would be no sense of injustice because, you know, I've heard people comment and say things like, well, such and such person should have just done nothing wrong 30 years ago and then they wouldn't oh, be goodness. here. And, yeah. Well, if we're going to use that standard yeah. <laughs> and what's interesting to take this a step further mm. is that we are now even seeing some of this stuff being used either in this direct context or related context against individuals who were born in the United States. So mm -hmm. now we're seeing cases where the government is saying, oh, well, you were never a citizen in the first place. So mm -hmm. those might be people who were born near the border. Or uh, in at least one case, it was a, a woman who was born uh, on a farm in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. So the government refused to issue her a new passport, even though it had issued her previous passports. Wow. Okay. Uh, and, and this is somebody with the most, you know, common Anglo-Saxon style name you could imagine, right? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, even as far as people are concerned who are maybe thinking, well, at least I don't have brown skin and I don't have an accent, so I have nothing well, to worry about. Guess yeah. what? This lady <laughs> did not fall into either one of these categories and right. still... And still the government went after her. So all of a sudden, all these people who have been leading these normal lives, writing their own business, are running into these huge problems and are having to go through the legal system, or in her case, she ended up going through her political representative, just to continue living their lives and to continue getting their passports. Right. Uh, and this gives a tremendous amount of political power 
to right. uh, the executive. And and there has to be suspicion as to who is it going to be used against and what kind of chilling effect is it going to have on immigrants or, I don't know, people born near the border or people born on farms or anyone who has anything quirky right. that is happening about, about their birth situation or anything like that. Are they not going to say, you know what, I was going to write that article that was going to criticize the government but or give that speech and... No, no, I'm kind of scared. Maybe I shouldn't, or maybe I shouldn't run for office, or maybe I shouldn't speak out because I just don't want to be on anyone's radar. And is that the kind of country we want to live in? No, I mean, First Amendment, right? So we we should be able to have, well, not should be able, like that is our right to have uh, the freedom of speech and be able to criticize those who are in power, those who are in authority, right? And as you were saying before, even people who were born in America, nobody has a squeaky clean (laughs) record. I'm sure there's something, uh, they don't need to look into my history too deeply, but you know, (laughs) but I'm sure you can, you know, we we, we all have that. Um, And if, if they take portions or moments in your life and try to sort of look at it in a, in a different way, they might use that as grounds, right? To mm-hmm. revoke, mm-hmm. you know, that, that privilege. So what, what I'm basically hearing is that it's, it's up to uh, a lot of the, the termination of the executive, right? Um, mm-hmm. yes. and, and the government. So is there a better way <laughs> to deal with cases like these? Uh, I'm not sure from a, a legal point of view, or you have an idea of how can we make this potentially more fair, or whether there's uh, a little bit more checks and balance in this determination process. Your thoughts on that? I think the one thing that that courts could do right now and should do right now um, is to recognize that the citizenship interest is a liberty interest. And it's Mm. a liberty interest as important as um, somebody's freedom in a criminal case. And so one of the things we argue in the paper is that civil denaturalization cases need the same kind of procedural protections that you would see when liberty is most at risk. This means people need the right to an attorney. Um, If somebody can't afford an attorney, one should be appointed to them. Um, There should be a statute of limitations. Um, There should be a right to ensure effective notice, which typically means by by personal service of process um, or otherwise proving that somebody had notice of the proceedings against them. Mm. Um, I think that's kind of the low hanging fruit that could be implemented tomorrow, today, now. Um, <laughs> Yesterday, I think the, right? <laughs> today. <laughs> right. Um, I, I, I think the uh, the longer term question and, and one of the things we're working on next in our scholarship mm-hmm. is to look at whether it's time to close that last loophole in denaturalization and to say that the finality interest is so important to political participation and First Amendment use, as you talked about, mm-hmm. um, that you know the Supreme Court left open this loophole for alleged fraud or ineligibility. And um, maybe it's time to close that too, for the exact same reasons that the Supreme Court warned about back in 1967, when it it shut down all the other potential grounds. Got it. Nice. Irina? That was a a slam dunk, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. no, I... I I completely, uh, I completely agree with Cassandra. Um, unsurprisingly, right? right? Um, because we really, we have to get to a point where 
if we believe in equality of citizenship, mm -hmm. uh, as I was saying earlier, between people that were born here and those that weren't, with the exception, I guess, of all right, that's all right if people like myself can never run for president, right? I'll, I'll live with that. I'll vote um, for you. It's too bad. I would yeah, vote for yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You'll have two you votes. You have two. <laughs> exactly. No, I'm kidding. Go ahead. It's more than I had half an hour ago. <laughs> right, right. Um, but uh, there has to be some kind of concept that at some point we are all equal, that citizenship is not something that can just be taken away from you. Uh, sometimes we might be more careful before we take away somebody's driver's license, right? Than, than somebody, than somebody's, uh, than somebody's citizenship. And so that's, that's not, that is not acceptable. Um, kind of everybody listening to this program should ask themselves, what would they do tomorrow if their citizenship were taken away? What would their life look like? What would that mean? What would it mean for their family? What would it mean for their work? And some of the people who have been forced to leave this country, mm -hmm. they never knew another country. Mm -hmm. They came here when they were very, very young or they were born here. And one of the things we have not spoken about yet today is the issue of derivative citizenship, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is that if somebody uh, loses his or her citizenship, if their children got citizenship as a result of that initial one, right, mm -hmm. they're now also going to lose their citizenship potentially, right, right? under the same procedure. And this, I mean, this could go on for generations and generations right. where you could have grandchildren and great-grandchildren whose citizenships are all at risk, right? right? The gain is ridiculously small, right? Mm. In terms of actually what does the DOJ have to show for the denaturalization of Baljinder Singh, mm -hmm. right? What do they have to show for denaturalizing Norma Borgonio? Is our country really safer yeah. as a result? What's the net benefit so from that? Yeah. Yes, I mean, the cost-benefit analysis, and this was really similar to our thinking with the no-fly list. The cost-benefit analysis is just, it's not, it does not warrant this outcome. And so, you know, it's easy for people to point at that one guy who was a criminal sure. or who came there's into the outliers everywhere. Mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, there's always, there's always going to be a case like that. Mm -hmm. But if we look at it globally and we look at all the people that are affected and all the people affected by the chilling effects, there is no question that the current system cannot stand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, that kind of loops us back around to the creation of this new section and what we're nervous about. And I would say it's, it's interesting to me that the New York Times reported that there were people not willing to speak on record, but people within the Department of Justice itself that were worried about the new section, worried that it would sweep too broadly. And um, I think I think that's exactly right. I think that is also our fear. And I think you know, the concern about having this institutionalized section of the DOJ that's looking at denaturalization is that it's going to look at denaturalization as a an end unto itself, mm -hmm. um, that it's going to count as a win anytime it successfully takes away somebody's citizenship. Mm -hmm. And that's different. If you had a national security section, right, or an anti-terrorism section that was only looking at cases with a connection to terrorism and national security, maybe they would do some denaturalization work as well. But the end goal is to make a safer America. Mm -hmm. I worry if the end goal is to take away citizenship. And that, I think, gets back to our concern about, in particular, the, the procedural failings. Because if the end goal really is to take away citizenship, then are they going to look not at the cases that are, 
you know, present the largest risk to the United States, but are they going to look at the cases that they think are easiest to win? And maybe they're easiest to win because the person can't afford an attorney and can't afford to defend themselves. One of the things that we cite in our paper is actually a U.S. attorney bulletin where three um, assistant U.S. attorneys write an article saying, if you have cases that are hard to win, consider bringing them as civil denaturalization cases because it's easier to win them because you Mm -hmm. don't have to worry about the person having an attorney or having these other procedural protections. Mm -hmm. And so I worry that they're going to target the vulnerable in that way. They're not going to put up as much of a fight, right? That's that's what it comes down to. Um, so the one last thought, if the concern is really about fraud, <laughs> then put those resources in at the front end. Yes. Right. Put them in at the screening stage, do all the screening when people are applying and ask all the questions then, ideally without some of the delays we're seeing, right? Put in more, um, put in more manpower. Uh, through those greater resources, mm-hmm. take all of that money from denaturalization and stick it there. Yep. Look, if you fail there as the government, then why should you get two bites at the apple, mm-hmm. right? Why should you get to come back 10, 20 years later and, and fix what you should have done right the first time? Yeah, that's right. a great so point. I think that's what we should do. Right. And I think it's just humanizing this, right? Irina, as, as you were saying, you know, put yourself in that position. Living 20, 30 years in America, most of your memories, if not all of your memories, are in this country, right? And to have something that might be considered minor, uh, mm-hmm. turn that all around. It should not be that easy. I, I appreciate you guys uh, coming on. Uh, please continue your scholarship because we, the the public, uh, are relying on people like you. I see, Cassandra, I see all those books behind you, you know, because somebody's got to read them. Somebody's got to read them, Okay. <laughs> Thanks so much. <laughs> you know, and we'll try to amplify your voices and, and others like you to give us a better sense of really what's going on. So I really do appreciate the, the effort and, and the time that you guys uh, put into this. Thank you. Thank you. That means a lot to us. Thanks yes. so much for having us. Thank you to assistant producers Luke Bianco and David White and music by Brandon Williams. Follow Immigration Nerds on Twitter and Erickson Immigration Group on LinkedIn to join in the conversation. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next week.